Welcome to another episode of Irish Mike's Podcast. I'm super excited to have you here, and welcome Matt Rudolph, where we discuss the rise of Celtic Christianity. The focus of the conversation today is, via St. Patrick, how Christianity spread throughout Ireland, the United Kingdom, and of course, uh, the rest of Europe. It's a fascinating conversation. I think you'll get a lot out of it. Plus, it's kind of a personal story in that St. Patrick's School was the name of the school that my sister and I and my aunts and uncles on my mom's side went to school and grew up in a tiny little hamlet of Hilliard, Washington. So a little personal connection there as well. Well, Matt Rudolph, uh, welcome to the show. It's so great to be with you, Mike. Well, I've known your family for uh, quite a few years. I've gotten to know most of, I think, your siblings, their spouses. Um, and uh, I've really, uh, through my sister, Molly, as you know, a relationship there, um, we got a chance to visit um, out in Cyprus. My oldest son, Nate, and I, uh, several years ago, I guess it would have been close to 10 years ago now, nine or 10. And uh, I, got, I finally caught... Um, I caught what she was getting, uh, why your family and the ministry in Cyprus and, and throughout the world um, was was so great and the people were so great. I came from a little bit of a different church experience, and so it was a little bit of an adjustment for me. Uh, and what I realized is that uh, you and your siblings and your folks and the people you've surrounded yourself over the years are just some of literally the best people I've ever met. Thank you. That's uh, very kind of you. And uh, what I've gotten to appreciate from you, uh, from afar, you specifically, is how much self-study you do um, on history and culture. Um, you know, certainly in the in the Jewish community and the Christian community. And one of the things that I wanted to capture was something that is important to me, and that is my sort of Irish Catholic heritage. Yes. Uh, as you know, my sister and I went to St. Patrick's Catholic School in a little little hamlet called Hilliard in uh, Spokane. Um, it is now a classical Christian Catholic school or Catholic Catholic classical Catholic. I'm not sure how that works. Anyway, they are Catholic, but they're doing the uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic at that building that we grew up on on East Queen uh, all those years ago. And what's extra important to me is, you know, my mom went there as well. And all of my aunts and uncles went to, to that same little Catholic school. And then I got a chance to uh, go to Ireland um, uh, several years ago with uh, my, one of my other sons, Jackson Smith. Uh, he is now going to be a sophomore at Gonzaga. And uh, we got to see the area that uh, the, the St. Patrick, uh, you know, ministered and uh, supposedly his gravesite. And it looks like uh, one of the um, churches uh, that he helped found years ago um, that, uh, you know, I think that he uh, led sort of a a conversion of a a guy and a farmer out there in Ireland. And then they ended up building a church on the property. And I got a chance to see that church. So you throw all that into the blender and you hit spin. Um, And I've read a little bit, but I know you're more well-read than I. I'd like to hear uh, about the rise of Celtic Christianity um, and as it relates, uh, however, it's connected to St. Patrick or it doesn't have to be or bits and pieces and how Christianity uh, spread into that uh, beautiful country of Ireland and, and kind of some of the what's, what happens next, you know, kind of a speech. Would you, would you mind sharing some of that with us? Absolutely. Well, something that's, I guess there's a couple things that you have presented here that I'd love to comment on, you know, before getting into that one, you mentioned just like the self-study. I think that love of learning probably comes from somewhat from my Jewish heritage, some it's personality and some it's just a necessity in life. You know, I I grew up in a missionary family uh, from a Jewish background and, 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 Often when we're looking for models for the future, we have to look back to our roots to be able to kind of see a way forward. And that's very much, I feel like with this whole Celtic Christianity uh, topic, I I felt like in some ways I stumbled into it from a young age with a couple of different 
uh, passions to do with uh, some of the literature that I was reading, uh, with some of the music that I was listening to. I, um, I have a very keen love uh, for reading for literature, uh, as also am a musician and been very inspired um, by Irish music and, and even looked at some of the similarities uh, uh, between the typical folk instruments of Ireland and the instruments of ancient Israel, which is just a, a fascinating study on its own. Um, and so I, for, for me, this, this journey began on a personal level with reading authors like George MacDonald, who was a Scottish uh, writer, the contemporary of Dickens and um, Lewis Carroll and others, and was a very prolific writer, but uh, had incredible depth as a, a Presbyterian minister. And, but he wrote about the Highlands of Scotland. And now, now I know we're across the water there, but the Celtic tribes, you know, they kind of all of that Northwest corner of Europe was where they, they were um, positioned. And there was a certain mystery and intrigue that came by things that were alluded to in his writing that made me want to know more. And then I uh, came, came across another author, Stephen Lawhead, who wrote uh, fiction, but a lot of it based on early Celtic folklore. And, um, and that produced a real fascination inside of me. And then there was, Mike, the a band that I think when I was probably 13, I started listening to, and it was a band called Iona. And they were named after this little island that's you have to go to an island and then take a ferry to the island of Mull and then go drive across the island in another ferry to get to Iona and that whole island off between the west coast of Scotland and Ireland um, was a monastic settlement that was incredible because it was like the edge of the world it was isolated and so hard and out in the elements and yet the lives of the saints and the people who lived there had a great impact in re-evangelizing uh, Northern Britain and then and also eventually down into Europe itself. And, uh, and so it was like music and literature that got me interested initially. And then you, as you said, you, you met our family while we were in Cyprus and we were, as, as missionaries, we were exploring, I could say to some extent, we were pursuing an experiment of what it looked like to develop community that gathers around a lifestyle of devotion with prayer and worship, mission, hospitality, adventure, all these different things. And as we were looking at this model for how we could live that out, we found ourselves going back to the New Testament, to the early church, the book of Acts. And then probably the strongest other example that we saw was in early Irish Christianity that, yes, St. Patrick um, helped to, to birth there in, in Ireland in, in the 400s. And, uh, and so with the, seeing the combination of these things that we were modeling our missions community after, we, we wanted to draw courage from history. Are we crazy? Is this, has this been done before? How, how effective has it been? And so it started uh, a years of really uh, researching, learning, asking questions, taking some journeys uh, to understand more about this mysterious Irish monastic movement and their um, early Celtic Christianity. So that was a start for us. Oh, I love that. So, so is it, I guess, and I'm going to, you know, play a little bit dumb and, and partly not just play it. I probably will be dumb um, is uh, specifically what, what is it true? And what can you speak to that's that Patrick of uh, what was his full name? Patrick of something that escapes me. Uh, anyway, wherever he was from was yeah. one of the first Christian missionaries into Ireland. Isn't that correct? That That's correct. There, there, there's, He's certainly recognized as the patron saint of Ireland, right? And and the impact of of his teaching of his ministry really was the expansion of the Christian faith into the island. It was overcoming. It was a lot of themes of, of light versus darkness as the Christian faith, the way of love would would 
would, uh, that's expressed through the life of Jesus, would um, conquer by love and send the darkness out of Ireland from kind of the pagan heathen past. So, so let's talk about that just for a second, because what would he have, what, when he lands, mm-hmm. and, and where is he from exactly? Where did, was well, he born and raised? Well, there's some speculation on that. You know, he Patrick gives his own confession, or maybe a more modern um, w- verbiage for it would be uh, testimony. And and we have we have two documents from Patrick's time from the 400s. We have the his confession, and then we have uh, the letter called Letter to Croticus, a Roman soldier, and and those are the primary documents. And then a lot of the other um, hagiography, we could say, or spiritual biography of Patrick comes in following centuries and it, and it develops according to the different streams, different storylines in it. So some people say that it's Britain, um, at that time, or what would be the coast of what would be modern day Wales. Uh, there's even some speculation to Brittany, Northwest France, um, for sure. He probably went after becoming a slave to there to study. Um, but yeah, he came from like, let's say the, the mainland of Got Britain it. over uh, to, to Ireland. And when he gets there, what is it that he arrives? What, what is it that he sees? What is Ireland like at that time? Well, it's, it's really fascinating because when he comes to, at, on a sense of mission, it's not his first time to Ireland. When, when he is a young lad, there's a, a raiding war band that um, kidnaps him and takes him as a slave across the waters. This is not uncommon um, between the tribes and the clans, um, both what would be within Ireland and the area that he came from um, in Britain. And, uh, but he's, and he's treated as a slave. He's out amongst the sheep in the harsh elements and as a 16 year old boy learning a, a new language, being um, treated very harshly. And in this period of time, it seems that his faith is developed. He came from a Christian family, but it seems that during this time in his desperation of the plight that he has separated from his kinfolk and in the harshest of elements and really treated less than human during that time, that in the, in the cold winter nights out in the elements, he begins to develop a life of prayer and, and, and a relationship. With, with God during that time. So eventually the, the story goes that, that after some years of servitude, um, he, he has a vision and knows it's his time to escape and is able to escape from this chieftain that uh, he's been a slave to and makes his way down to the coast and gets on board a ship and, and, and makes his way home. He goes on on a journey of of learning during that time and studies and is in a a monastery and then ends up when he's awakened by a dream one night where he hears his name being called. And uh, and in that dream, it's the voice of the Irish that are calling to him and saying, Patrick, Patrick, come, come back. And he recognizes a sense of calling, a sense of mission at that time. So in just such a beautiful turn of events, the people that were his oppressor, the people right. that, that, that he suffered under, he feels the heart of God for, and now returns back to Ireland of his own accord. And he comes, he sails over, and he's going to preach the gospel to those that were pagan and wouldn't have known the message of Jesus. Can, can I jump in on just for a, a couple of clarifying points? So um, Ireland was like, uh, you know, what Scotland, Wales, and in, in England would have been clans, families, tribal, uh, a lot of infighting. Um, exactly. And you probably have the Viking influence as well uh, already at that point, I imagine, coming over the top into Ireland. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. It's, it was heightened a little bit later, but um, but yeah. Uh, but the, war bands, clans, tribes. War ba- exactly. Yeah. Okay. So he is uh, enslaved. He uh, is brought to Ireland to uh, to be a slave. And how does he get his freedom and end up back, uh, as you put it, on the on the mainland before he feels the, the the sense of calling to go back as as a missionary? Yeah. So he 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 has a vision, and after like 
really feeling that it's impossible to escape. Uh, there, he's in this under this tribal king and uh, in the harshest of elements, and it's really a risk of death to try to escape. He's he's like a shepherd out and uh, living in the elements, and through this th this vision that he has. He has given very specific instructions on how he is to make his way uh, away from the tribe, mm. and and it, and it works. And he gets away, and then he has to kind of barter to get on it, work on a, a ship to get his passage back over to uh, to his homeland. Yeah. He, he gets a vision for escape. This is how it's going to work. Oh, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's. Uh, so, you said paganism a couple of times. So, uh, the. You know, it's Stonehenge uh, style. I mean, are we talking about solstice uh, type uh, worshipers of nature or, or describe sort of Irish uh, paganism, for lack of a better phrase? Exactly. What, what would that have been like? Exactly. Very tied uh, to gods and goddesses um, with a strong history and folklore of of a battle and in, in, in the between the kind of spiritual and natural elements and the having to provide, provide offerings as an allegiance to the different gods. Um, the Druidism uh, was, you know, the Druids were kind of like the, they had the knowledge of medicine. They had the knowledge of, of science or would could say like earth science. Um, at those times, they were like the wise men of those communities. And there, there was, it was based on the, the seasons the forms of worship, including sacrifice um, and uh, quite a barbaric expressions uh, of faith at that time. Patrick, though, because he had been enslaved, he, ha he had an awareness of the culture. He had an awareness of the religious background. And so he knew what he was getting into. He, he was a very much uh, prepared in going back. He accounted the cost of what it me meant. You know, by escaping as well, he knew that at some point he would have to be able to confront that king and that it's the, at the risk of his life that he escaped from as a slave during that time. And uh, the church that you were referencing there, um, where he first landed, he sailed into a river estuary and he approached a local king who had had land. And when we say king, we're talking about very small, you know, like kind of farms and sure. estate and asked for a piece of land to build his church. And the, uh, the stories, you know, go was that there were some miracles that he performed that gave him the favor to plant the first church and to build a chapel uh, to God in that place. It's a, it is a very special place till this day. It's, it's called Saul church. Uh, Saul right. S A U L is the lo the location. And, um, and it's the start of his mission in into Ireland. So, so what would mission life be like at that time? I mean, I've, you know, I know a little bit of church history and uh, we have uh, some modern symbols in our Christian faith that were uh, a blend, uh, say, of, of some of the faiths that some of our missionary uh, ancestors had come across. For example, um, one that I always think of is Easter. It mm -hmm. falls right around the spring solstice. Uh, obviously, uh, there's, um, you know, a lot of humanistic and whatnot, natural elements uh, involved in that. Uh, and and the, the story I always heard, not in Easter, is that, um, you know, the, the calendars certainly don't jive with when Jesus would have, you know, been uh, rose from the dead. Uh, but it was put in the spring. Um, as a way to connect some stories as different mission folks uh, throughout Europe connected uh, with pagans and other thing and other folks. Is that, does that sound roughly true? Yeah, that's, that's certainly in the, in the, in the broad sense, uh, correct. Uh, it's very interesting. This is another for the early Irish Christian movement their inspiration seems to come and in, in it's thought that even Patrick's own training what came from some uh, from some monasteries that were more aligned with the desert fathers out of you know ancient Egypt there, and that would have been connected to the early apostolic witness out of Jerusalem, and so for a lot of let's say Roman mission that came with the Roman sure. Empire, 
there was this um, allegiance to Rome, and and uh, they looked to Peter as as the head of head of the church. Whereas the Eastern Church, with the Orthodox, the Copts, the Ethiopians, Armenians, and other expressions, um, they looked very much to the Apostle John as as kind of the oldest of the apostles that uh, lived the longest, and then passed on to the early church fathers what he had seen and what he had ex experienced of of being a follower and a friend of Jesus. And somehow this connection to the East went all the way across and in Ireland, because it was considered like the edge of the world. Right. Outpost. It, the outpost. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the kind of farthest away that you could get at that time. Uh, but instead of being there in the early times, really connected to kind of the, the Roman and expansion and Christianity following the Roman expansion, they're very much connected, for example, in the artwork that came, the style of artwork that the um, scribes, as they copied out the Gospels, and they would illustrate that in the, in the Celtic style, um, was very similar to the icons that you find in the Syrian desert in those monasteries and in, oh, interesting. in, in Egypt and even Ethiopia. So it's, it's very fascinating um, in that regards. Now, how that relates to your question about the feasts and the biblical calendar is that until the 600s, there was a, uh, a council in England where Roman delegation came. It's called the Council of Whitby. And there was a, an argument that these Irish Christians had kind of become their own branch. And because they were different from mainland Europe, they were actually celebrating the dates of Passover, like the Jewish tradition, and not of e Easter. So the resurrection day was following the Hebraic calendar. And uh, a lot of the things that were probably from the witness of the apostolic fathers to the desert fathers, and then some that were inspired, some people that traveled and journeyed to North Africa, and then across Europe and brought, you know, the gospel and Patrick himself being influenced by that. There's even, uh, which, this would get off into a whole nother subject, but there's even some reason to believe that he may have been of, of Hebrew lineage himself as well. Although, oh, interesting. Although a Christian. Well, so, so some of my uh, reading is that, you know, Rome, the empire itself kind of gave up on England. They kind of abandoned that, you know, they got up there, right, as part of their expansion. And they they left there first because it was either too far, to, you know, to, to get to um, or uh, they were kind of unruly and unmanageable. And so they kind of kind of turned their backs on the area. Um, and uh, and so out of that, tell me if this is correct. Uh, what is now, you know, England and uh, the UK and all that, maybe not the UK, but Great Britain. Um, uh, a lot of that um, sort of, how do I want to say it, uh, style of Christianity uh, was a little bit more unique, uh, kind of to your to one of your points earlier uh, than, say, the rest of Europe. Is, does that, that sound right? Is that because of the, the Romans left and they were kind of left to their own? Or, or, or is it more along the lines of, uh, the influence from sort of that Eastern expression or, or combination of both? I would say, Mike, that it's definitely a combination of both. There was the vacuum when, when kind of Rome pulled back that the, the heathen influence came in. And so then that kind of, then with the influence of those missionary monks, let's say that came across um, from North Africa, as I said before, and then up through Europe and came in there from Brittany specifically to England and then over to Ireland, there was that influence then of more of like an, maybe an Eastern perspective on that. That came to a head at the Council of Whitby and then there was a decision that was made and it became more Romanized at that point. Got it. Um, Which we, we trace our sort of Roman Catholic uh, experience in Ireland and being a quote Irish Catholic yes. uh, would, would have come out of that council you're saying and, and kind of why even today in Ireland and, and parts of Italy and other in France and other parts of Europe, there's a very like, uh, you know, some, a stand-up community made the joke that you could go to any mass in the world and you could just pick right up where it left because it's very consistent. Right. Right. Uh, so it probably comes out of that council uh, and certainly a few councils since. Yes. That, Got it. That's correct. 
So with, with Patrick's story, I think one of the things that's helpful, because a lot of times people um, read these spiritual biographies, you know, in the same way as they would approach uh, a regular historical biography. Mm -hmm. And and it's not helpful. I mean, it's, it's important to be able to like, so the technically we call it a hagiography. That's, you know, the life of the saint. The purpose is a little bit different. It's not just to convey historical facts about someone's life. It's much more in the hagiography, the central purpose is is to show through the life of of a person how they have been transformed in their life to to become more like Christ, become more like Jesus, and the transformation that can happen so that people could imitate them. And so it's not as always as literal in the use of, of the stories and the miracles and the different encounters that have are helpful if you look at it from a perspective of transformation and of, of like a spiritual journey of transformation. And so sometimes that's an important distinction. I like that. Yeah. Sometimes people get caught up on like, well, is, is this historically possible? Or, you know, every element. And really for these spiritual biographies, the point is to step back from it and to look at the process of transformation. And that's the storyline. And it's an invitation for the reader then, especially if you think about it in, um, you know, a thousand years ago, right. uh, without all the access to information that, that we have today, uh, the, the main point would be the transformation of the reader by the example of the saint that they're studying. Yeah, that's uh, I really like that. Uh, on that note, um, I read a book called um, I think the the author is Thomas Cahill, mm-hmm. uh, How the Irish Saved Civilization. Did you ever did you read that book? Yeah, excellent, excellent book. And he is uh, yeah, it is excellent. And he I think he he wrote some other books about some other groups. I can't remember them off the top of my head, but one of the the thoughts that he pushes uh, there, I would love for you to speak to and maybe tie it back into into Patrick of Ireland is um, uh, the thought that, you know, that this outpost, right, Ireland and and, and Great Britain and all of that, um, that the Irish, quote, saved civilization because they were so busy in their monastic, um, you know, uh, situation and, and, and livelihood and whatnot, and they were remote enough to where they spent their time kind of capturing all of this. You talked about uh, re, you know, copying the, the the gospels and and drawing beautiful artwork to go along with um, the gospels and, and other scripture and things like that. Um, I mean, it, is that part of of Patrick's influence? Was in, in let me let me add this to it. When this past week we were over in uh, in North Idaho on uh, Coeur d'Alene Lake, and we went to the old Cataldo mission, uh, Father Cataldo. Uh, and he was a Jesuit and, you know, long story short, my high school experience and, and a lot of that, my boys had a Jesuit experience uh, for their Catholic education and things like that, because the Jesuits felt like their calling was education. Right. And so was Patrick's, you know, quote, calling was his mission to, um, you know, to, to, to get these monasteries and, and sort of, you know, call them disciples or, or converts or whatever uh, to, to, you know, to, to capture and, and rewrite and, and not rewrite, but uh, do you, hear, you understand where I'm going with this? Yeah, I feel like I'm not doing a very good job of <laughs> teeing up the question, but uh, you know, what was that mission? If the Jesuits were trying to educate, what was, what was Patrick doing? And does it have any connection to this Irish saving civilization concept that I loved reading about? It, uh, it does. And yeah, you're, you're definitely on the right track there from what I understand you know, Patrick comes in and, and he's boldly preaching the gospel of Jesus. He's boldly shining the light of love, the light of liberty that comes through Jesus. And, and there is a conversion that's taking place. And he would, he would confront the tribal kings. And with as the hag- hagiographies um, describe, there would be kind of power encounters, miracles, signs, wonders that would open up the hearts of the people, kind of was their language of power that they would understand. And and as these conversions would take place, it was spreading like a wildfire. And, and, and 
as his disciples, as his followers started to establish themselves, maybe he was more like a trailblazer, you know, and a forerunner in terms, but the, the, those that came after him began to establish these like centers and they, the, the monasticism of the early Irish movement in the 400s and the 500s the 600s is very different from what we imagine out of our picture of like medieval monasticism. And I think that's important distinctive to, to bring about because they were, they were organized originally under abbots um, and, and the abbot actually had more authority than a bishop. You know, it kind of was built around this clan and tribe identity and family. And so the, the monasteries weren't just like a place of seclusion or a place to get away from the world in, in Ireland in those early uh, years of the faith being established there, but they were really like a, a, a crossroads of commerce, of education and learning. Um, uh, there was, there was uh, families and industry that was all gathered around the, the monastic life that was taking place. And there was also, they were very mission-minded. They were really considered mission outposts. In fact, the monks that were given to all those could always approach the abbot and ask for permission to go out on mission. So although they made their vows, they weren't uh, confined to that monastery for life. They were, and they were always expanding and going and planting uh, new ones. So there was this, this love of learning, this uh, passion for adventure, I would say. I, I mean, really part of that missionary zeal of the Irish was they were called the uh, Peregrini, which would mean wanderers. And they were like these pilgrim monks that, that would just like go from place to place preaching the gospel. In fact, one of my heroes um, that followed on uh, later from St. Patrick um, is St. Brendan. And St. Brendan, he's, he's known as the navigator and, you know, on the west coast of Ireland, where he planted monasteries, um, they, the traditional bro boats were called curraghs. And the curraghs were like, had a frame to them within the hides of, of ox or cattle being spread over them. And so it was a very light vessel that they could hoist a sail, but it kind of rode on top of the waves rather than a hole that would cut through them. And Brendan and his disciples were known to go out from river estuaries on the west coast of Ireland, and they would lift a sail and they would say a prayer and they'd say, wind of God, fill this sail and whatever shore you lead me to there, I'll preach the gospel. Wow. And, and, uh, and they just, they had this like love of adventure. They had this like um, restlessness in them that was so useful for the expansion of, of, the, of the gospel and of Christianity and of the faith. And, and so between their love of learning and um, having the scriptoriums in, in, in the monastic uh, settlements where they would copy out uh, the, the gospels particularly, and, and, and then they would take those with them as they would go out on their missionary endeavors. After the barbarians had swept the Roman, Rome pulled back, barbarians had swept through Europe, then these Irish missionary monks would go out often in bands of 12, looking at the example of Jesus's disciples. They would get into these small boats and they would launch out and maybe they would land in Brittany. Um, in, you know, northwest corner of France today, or in different parts of Europe, and they began to re-evangelize Europe. And wherever they planted their monastic settlements, because of their love for learning and using the scriptures as a way of training and teaching, those monastic settlements became the seabed or the beginnings of the what we know as the modern universities. And it was where kings would send their children, their princes to come and to learn from these Irish monks. And then, you know, it kind of spread out that way. There's oh, that's, a, that's awesome. Keep going. There, there's a prayer um, that's attributed to St. Brendan. And I just, I just absolutely lo love that prayer. And I, I'd love, I'd love to read it to you. It's been an inspiration in my own yeah. life. Um, but this is attributed to St. Brendan it says, help me to journey beyond the familiar and into the unknown. 
Give me the faith to leave the old ways and break fresh ground with you. Christ of the mysteries, I trust you to be stronger than each storm within me. I will trust in the darkness and know that my times even now are in your hand. Tune my spirit to the music of heaven and somehow make my obedience count for you. That's really a picture of this, this zeal for adventure, for faith, and, and that led them to embrace hardship, but to boldly go. Amazing. As kind of like wild men, really. I mean, when the Irish monks showed up in town, they were a sight and wonder. Their tonsure was different than the Roman tonsure, you know, like how they shaved their heads. Like the, the Romans, they kind of had the, you know, what you would see, Friar Tuck, right? From the right. movies, you know, the back of the head, you know, the circle shaved off. Well, the, the Irish monks, they shaved all the, the front half of their head and then grew out their hair in the back along. And it was actually kind of the tradition of the Druids before them, the holy men of their lands. And they would show up and, uh, and at times uh, they would wear just rough garments, kind of like in the spirit of John the Baptist. And they would show up in town and people were like, who are these wild men? And then they would boldly come and they would preach the gospel um, and pretty fearless. When you talk about, you know, mission work and landing at these beaches and, and uh, you know, other tribes and, and communities and stuff, um, you know, are we talking like open air crusade style uh, preaching? Are we going, you know, family to family? Is there a contact that they may have connect with and they're having dinner and breaking bread and, and drinking wine and discussing the gospel? I mean, how are they planting churches? How, how take me through for a couple of minutes what that kind of mission work uh, looked like yeah. as they built relationship in these new communities. Many of the stories are of them going and speaking to the local chiefs, the, the leaders of the clans, the Kings and, and going there to the, like people of influence and preaching there first. And that, and the, and the results are in the stories that we have of the lives of the saints are like both extremes of, acceptance that would then open the way for them to then have the welcome to be able to preach to the whole tribe or region and also of confrontation like uh saint columbanus he he was based out of bangor which is in northern ireland today and uh, was a monastic community also that um had continual prayers going going on in Bangor and what they called the Valley of the Angels, which was actually a vision that Patrick had um, mm. when he was there. And then in later generations, this monastery was planted. But Columbanus with, with his 12 disciples went from, let's say the Northeastern coast of, of Ireland, and then went down to Brittany and then across Europe to what would be modern day Switzerland and ended up in Italy. So he, he, he literally preached his way through planting monasteries and planting churches all the way along. And he was always confronting the local kings on moral, political issues. And, and I mean, and there are stories where he's imprisoned, he's thrown in chains and has to escape with their lives, you know, and the other times where he's well-received and he, and he plants a monastery, a whole like, like um, Sangalan, Switzerland was one of where he had gone and preached and ministered. And then that city, a modern city today, is where his disciple, St. Gall, together with Columbanus, uh, planted their monastery and then left Gaul there. And he continued on over the Swiss Alps into Italy, ended up in Bobbio at the end of his life. And which is really fascinating too, because uh, that he made his journey planting churches and monasteries from Northern Ireland all the way right across Europe down to Italy. And out of that same town, a young man hundreds of years later is going to feel a call and is going to revolutionize the church in his generation. And he, he was a young son of a wealthy uh, ruler in the time. And his name was Francis, St. Francis. 
But literally you begin to see and connect the dots that there was like a righteous heritage of the gospel. Amazing. Are you talking about uh, Xavier? I'm or talking about Francis of Assisi. Of Assisi. Okay. Yeah, but, but he came yeah. from, yeah. From Switzerland. From, he went from Northern Italy. Northern Italy, yeah. yeah. Through there. I got it. Yeah, got it. Yeah. No, I, I that's amazing. I, you know, today, right, I think Europe would be considered pretty secular. Mm-hmm. You know, churches, those ancient church buildings and whatnot are there as uh, stop-offs uh, and tourist destinations more so than they're being used, it seems, um, to some level. Um, but for, for centuries, it was, um, I mean, you know, the Christianity... Uh, rose and expanded from as Europe is basically the epicenter. I mean, would mm-hmm. you agree with that? Yes. And uh, I don't know exactly what it, what has changed, and I'm not here to discuss that today. But it's people like Patrick of Ireland, right, and others, and his uh, followers, and the men and women that have come after him, that really are responsible. It sounds like for the evangelization and really making Europe a Christian continent whether people want to say that or admit to that or not. I mean, it, it really was. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, and it sounds like from house to house, from, uh, you know, monastery to, to kind of, you know, to the next monastery that they established and, and it continues to, you know, to grow. And, and my heritage fast forward to 2022 uh, is, is rooted in that, in that my great grandmother emigrated from, she was born in Liverpool on her way to the United States, uh, her folks from Ireland. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I don't know what my life would be like without that, um, you know, heritage, both spiritually and otherwise. And, uh, you know, we've, we've talked on the idea of uh, culturally being Irish Catholic. Um, and, uh, and I know what I think, I think I know what that means. Uh, but I'd love for you to, to share any thoughts about, uh, about what it's like to be, you know, Irish Catholic American or, or even Italian, you know, um, Catholic American, you know, those concepts rooted in this awesome history of the faith in these great countries. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. In 2016 was my first time of actually going to Ireland. I I had spent some years growing up in England and then summered in Scotland and visited a lot of these historic places in England, Scotland, and Wales. But 2016, I took a team from our organization's uh, missional communities that were inspired by the early Irish church. And, um, and we went there to visit these ancient sites to pray, but almost as a, as a way of expressing appreciation and honor for the history but it can't remain just at that. Like when you go and you retell the stories, it's really with a sense of faith to say, if God did it in the 500s and in the 600s and there's a movement, why not again for today? And what we found is, is that I've, I've been going to Ireland since 2016, uh, a few times a year and, and speaking and teaching in different places. And, and, Amazingly enough, I was doing a seminar on the border uh, of the Republic and of Northern Ireland at a hotel, and I was teaching on the Jewish roots of the faith uh, as a Jewish believer in Jesus, and I just happened to allude to some of the Irish history in it, and then was invited back to come and teach on Celtic Christian spirituality. And Mike, amazingly enough, in doing these seminars with both Catholics and Protestants, different expressions of the church today in Ireland, we found common language out of the heritage for something that's not just a part of history. I think for a lot of people in Ireland, that's the store, the old stories, that's the old world, that's the bygone times. But for someone coming from the outside with a love for those stories, a love for the history, but to say that it's as applicable today as it was back then, that brings a message of hope it strengthens identity and resolve that things can really change in our generation. And that's very much my heart. I think, I think there's a cultural understanding that people have, but there's also a richness of faith and tradition. And the beauty of when faith and tradition combine is that it's a means for what's most important to transfer from generation to generation. 
one of the uh, things that frustrated me along the way, um, growing up Catholic and then going to more of a Protestant, you know, non-denominational church for most of my youth and, and, and into adulthood, was people that used to be Catholic or uh, or or would badmouth Catholic or something. They would, you know, really bash the tr- the traditional part, you know, the um, the liturgy, um, you know, and 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 you talked, uh, and I've always felt like there was value in it. I, I could understand the, you know, the one obscure scripture that would be referenced, you know, the traditions of men and da 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 da, but I never felt like that resonated with me um, in the Catholic Church all the time. I I can understand that you can get into a, like a rhythm and be on autopilot a little bit. I get what they're alluding to. At the same time, I've always felt like there was some peace and some um, strength that you could draw from in the the liturgical church and, and in that and into some of those traditions, and in even the family dynamic of uh, passing that uh, faith down through multiple generations, like it was in my family. Absolutely, absolutely. There's there's I, I think coming from a Jewish you know heritage, there is a love for tradition. Um, and uh, an appreciation that it can be a means by which we impart to the next generation and that gives a continuity. Um, And there's great stability. I think in the world today, there's so much insecurity about the future and being able to provide a a living faith that's rooted and it's stable in history can bring a lot of security to people and give them actually hope for the future. And I think we're all in need of that. Oh, totally. We should finish on that thought, but I want to do, I want to share two other things real quick. Um, We went to Skellig Michael when we were there. Um, Have you been there? Yes. What, what is that a pretty uh, accurate uh, depiction of what monastic life would have been like, uh, you know, in Ireland, or I don't even remember the years that that was built versus say when Patrick of Ireland was there, but I want to say it was in the early thousands, but don't quote me, please. You probably know. Uh, but what would, you know, that, that life and seeing that little um, view of, of uh, what a, a monk might, a monk's life might be like was pretty intense. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, well, that's probably why the Irish saved civilization is these guys couldn't get off that rock, you know, to come back. They had to stay there and just keep <laughs> writing <laughs> and pray. Yeah. It was, it, I would say I've, traveled to many different nations, been at, seen many of the wonders of the world. But for my wife and I, one of our most profound experiences was being on Gaelic Michael. Is that right? And, uh, it was, it was deeply moving to see the devotion, the raw elements, the, the beauty. Um, but knowing that it was such a difficult and hard life those monks lived. But I remember standing up on the edge of one of the cliffs, looking out West and to what they call in that area of the wild Atlantic, right? The <laughs> West coast of Ireland, the wild Atlantic way. And I was thinking, you know, these monks were praying prayers into the wind. They were praying prayers over the water and generations of prayer was going out. And Skellig Michael is, was actually um, the end of an ancient pilgrimage route that went from Carmel in Israel all the way across Europe and then up into the UK and across Ireland and out to Skellig Michael. It's called called St. Michael's Axis. And it was an old pilgrimage pilgrimage route. And I was thinking, how wild is it that I, and it's just one of those moments of kind of, you know, where you just, the light bulb goes off. And I'm thinking, here I am, a Jewish believer in Jesus, born in America, but just maybe my life and my family's background is the fruit of prayers that these monks prayed into the wind, that they prayed over the waters of the sea. You know, the scriptures say that the word of God does go out and accomplish what it set out to do. It won't return back void or empty. It has to be. And so for me, that was very special to stand there now, Mike, I have to say that my moment was ruined. You know, there's 600 and something steps in the side of the cliff. And Star Wars had one of the, uh, you know, movies had come out in around that time in 2016. And I'm walking up these steps thinking, these monks, you know, they carved them into the side of the cliffs. And then all of a sudden, 
further up the trail, I see a guy with a backpack on. And as I get closer to him, there's a Star Wars theme music going. And then I see a lightsaber sticking out of the back yeah. of, of his backpack. I'm like, you're ruining my ruining moment it. here. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> but it was epiphany yeah. for me. And the, the legend to, with Skellig Michael also is that, and Patrick, when he came to Ireland, that he drove the serpents off of Ireland and they went out across the water. And then the last kind of battle was from Skellig Michael out into the Atlantic. And, um, and what we see from that, what we understand from that is not so much a literal uh, understanding of what happened, but much more describing the spiritual battle that he was bringing the gospel from the other side of Ireland right across the country and then out to these islands of the sea and was the final place that the light came. And so when the monks established themselves, it was, they were literally standing on the edge of the world that was known at that time. And they were bringing the witness through their prayer, through their worship, their devotion that would lead the way for the gospel then to go across the sea and Maybe just you and I are the fruit of their prayer. Without question, I think absolutely. I'm always uh, um, a big, you know, I've always believed that uh, our country, you know, uh, exists for a lot of reasons. But one of them is uh, on the on the prayers of those that have gone before us, uh, in some cases, centuries before um, and why we even are where we are in the United States. I'm not talking about like some big esoteric thing. I'm just talking about literally people that live here for, for this and that have a faith tradition in our own country that is rooted in um, some of those ancient uh, experiences. Um, awesome stuff. I, I do uh, want to sh- share one thought that may not make the cut here at the end. Cause I promised my sister I'd ask you. Okay. Go for it. It's going to come across a little bit controversial, potentially, at least that's what Molly thinks it will be, but I know you can handle it. So as you know, I'm a uh, practicing farmer. I'm a I'm a amateur. Your wife got a chance to see. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I uh, really have enjoyed is our pigs. And so I've been reading a lot about uh, pigs and the domestication of pigs. And uh, in fact, the book that I'm almost done with is called Pig from Cave to Corn Belt. And one of the uh, chapters uh, focuses specifically on Judaism and uh, Islam and why uh, those two religions would uh, forbid the eating of pork. And uh, as a big fan of pork myself, (laughs) anyway, I've, I'm a, I'm not as good of a reader as you, but I've read a lot of stuff. I've been around a lot of great teaching, not a whole lot in the farming world until now. And one of the ideas that this author posits is there's a two-part reason as to why the Jews in particular don't eat pork. That has nothing to do with God's law except this. Um, Why would a loving and just God give his people animals that cannot be controlled or shepherded or anything like it? If they're going to wander or they're going to be, you know, any part of the Jewish history, sheep, goats, they can be shepherded, they can be cared for, they can travel hundreds and hundreds of miles on very little uh, anything, and they can survive. Pigs can't. That was one theory, is that the law comes down specifically to say, I wouldn't do that to you. This is how the guy puts it, okay? And the second one is, and I don't know if this is true or not, but the in the, the Egyptian slavery time, Um, The Hebrews that were used as essentially worked for the Egyptians to control the Jews, okay, they were allowed to keep pigs because the Egyptians had pigs, but they were allowed to keep them and and eat them and care for them. And and in their little spot, they had maybe a little corral or fence-like structure. And so the Israelites, the, the Hebrews would look to them and say, I ain't doing that because those guys treated us badly. There's no way in heck I would want to even associate myself with that lifestyle um, and that sort of thing. Of all my years of reading, Matt, I'd never even thought that there could be a goofy explanation like that. And I'm curious as to what you'd say. (laughs) Can you see why Molly wanted me to ask you that? Yes, I do. Thank you, Molly. (laughs) For uh... I will at least share this with her, whatever you say. (laughs) Yeah. Well, 
two things, since you gave two things, I'll come back with two things. One, one is that I have, I am not aware in, in my study and research of the, that, although it's very interesting, uh, concerning the, um, the Hebrews that were overseeing the work of their fellow people, you know, in slavery and bondage and having those. And, um, in, yes. I want to so, make it clear that this is not annotated bibliography. This is out of this one book, yeah. ca- just in case I don't have any facts to back it up, just to be right, clear. Right. Okay. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm not familiar with that. That's, that's interesting to hear. Um, and, and in terms of the nomadic, uh, lifestyle of, of the patriarchs and, um, it, it's, it's interesting, but the, the clean and unclean, you know, is, you know, found in the Torah, but there's, but it goes back to the Noahic uh, commandments of the animals that were brought onto the ark, right? In the separation of clean and unclean um, for, in the count of preparing for the flood and then after the flood, uh, repopulating the earth. Um, So it's like pre uh, giving of the law at Sinai, uh, the clean and unclean. I second, Matt. I'm on the phone. Go ahead, Matt. I I tend to think that uh, the that the laws to do with clean unclean aren't nearly as logical. Like I've heard a lot of explanations about you know the health benefits and or whatnot um, of of kosher eating and all of that. I think it's much more to do with God creating distinctives for the Israelites, for the Jewish people, in order that they could be set apart to be a witness spiritually in later times. Um, And so I I don't think it has to do nearly, it's not nearly as as pragmatic to do with kind of like, you know, health reasons, or even being no nomad shepherds right but much more to do with god creating distinctives and separation um in order in in order to uh set them up to be different to like to be able to say hey what makes them different from all the nations around us and then the point wasn't the clean and unclean food the point was the living god that they they worship here's my second second thing on this and this is this is a little bit fun but i I had a um, a teacher, a rabbi, one time that said, "Maybe God loves pigs so much <laughs> that He didn't want them to be all overly farmed, and <laughs> that He said, okay, for the Jewish people, you can't touch it, so that there'll be more for the Gentiles.'" Right. And that they will live on and provide bacon for the Gentiles. Now that sounds reasonable. It's because God's generous heart of love for That's all right. nations. He, he said, my people, you're going to abstain from it. So everyone else can really enjoy it. Yeah. that Now that is the best one I've heard so far. There you go. Because our, you know, Christian European uh, ancestry that we ta- touched on today uh, you know the 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 French and the Italians and and even the the folks from the from Great Britain and all that have turned that animal into something beautiful. <laughs> anyway, I'll share it with Molly. Matt, I really appreciate you taking uh, time. Uh, you have a lot of good good information, um, and it's um, for me it, it's personal, uh, and it certainly fills in uh, a couple of the cracks in in my knowledge and and you know I, I I'm proud of who I am. I I'm proud to be an Irish Catholic. I'm proud of the fact that I spent half my life roughly in the Catholic Church and the other half in you know quote the Protestant side. Um, I've enjoyed getting to know other uh, communities like yours um, and and I just it's a it's a beautiful. Uh, and this is going to sound really poetic and I don't mean to, uh, but it's, it really is a beautiful tapestry. It's a beautiful mosaic of God's people coming together and different expressions uh, with, I hope, you know, very similar, you know, goals, you know, love God, love people. And uh, that to me is what means the most. And, and I draw strength from 
Um, and I, I just do I draw strength from it and for my own life, for my own family. And it's, um, it's, it's stabilizing, uh, when all kinds of stuff can kind of beat you up around you. Yeah. Well, thank you, Mike, for having me today. And, you know, it's, it's special for me to talk about this because there is a affection in my heart um, for your people. There's an affection in my heart for your history. And one of the things, you know, in scriptures, it talks about that Gentiles will provoke Jewish people to jealousy. I've had the privilege of going to Ireland over these last years, retelling their stories to them from maybe a perspective from as an outsider and saying, there's a lot of treasure that you have and it goes beyond folklore, it goes beyond uh, culture, it goes to real substance of faith and heritage, and I, but this belongs to you. This water from a very ancient well mm. can slake the thirst of Irish people in Ireland and in the diaspora today. It's as relevant today as it was in the 400s, 500s, 600s, and uh, that's, that's a joy, and that's a privilege to be able to share that and hopefully to provoke people to say, yes, this is my heritage. This is my history, but it's relevant for today. Absolutely. I, I love that you shared all that. And I bet it brings a lot of um, peace and excitement and pride in a good way, um, you know, to, to the Irish folks that you share that with. Uh, um, I'm sure they, I'm sure they just love to hear it. Uh, I think it's amazing. Well, that wrapped up another edition of Irish Mike's Podcast. Thank you to Matt Rudolph for sharing that awesome journey of St. Patrick and the rise of Celtic Christianity. For the show notes, go to irishmikesmith.com forward slash podcast dash Celtic Christianity. Looking forward to having you next time. And as always, please rate us and subscribe and add some nice comments. It does help us get additional awesome guests. <laughs>